My name is Grace Carol Siplon. Uh, my, my writing name is Grace Carol, so you'll find that. Um, I go by she, her pronouns, and I identify as a woman. I am pansexual and cisgender. I will have a lot of creative outlets, but the main things I identify as are a writer, a director, and a content creator. So I am currently juggling trying to publish my first novel uh, and creating a TikTok presence that's been going fairly well. It's Don't Play With The Fae. I'm also directing shows and pitching to direct more shows and hope that we get more in-person theater in the coming months should all go to plan. <laughs> you said you identify as pansexual. What does that mean to you or how? what is that definition for you? Because some people don't know. Absolutely. So people get confused between pansexuality and bisexuality, and you probably should because they're very similar. And there can sometimes be, unfortunately, a little bit of clashing between the two titles, and there shouldn't be. Because bisexuality technically means you're attracted to both genders, but many, many bisexual people still don't see the gender binary in a rigid way and all that. But pansexuality specifically um, just basically says that gender will not come into play when it comes to your preferences. You will, there is no gender that you are not capable of being attracted to and being in a relationship with. So agender, um, gender fluid, cisgender, trans, any, any gender representation is someone you can still be attracted to because more than anything, the way I see pansexuality, you are attracted to the inner person before you're attracted to the outer person. You also mentioned your book. First of all, how's that going? And if you want to explain the story. It's going really well. Um, this book, it's a the first of a four-part series uh, that I've planned out. The series itself is called The Green Veil Volumes, and the book that is finished and trying to get out there is called The Sisterhood of Whispers. And it is a fantasy uh, series in a world that is not our own. So it's not like a Harry Potter insert into the universe. Um, but I was really playing with the idea of so many like high fantasy world building pieces. When you think about Lord of the Rings or the Grishaverse, Shadow and Bone, uh, a lot of different otherworldly fantasy is very strongly based off of European themes and imagery. The tavern, you drink ale, there are sometimes knights and lords, you know, like that. that's very present in like a, almost a feudal type situation with fantasy. And I thought it would be a fun thing to take that same idea of a kind of milking a, a time and place for all of its like fun themes and images and then making it fantasy but I chose 1950s America as the place I was going to draw all of my visual themes and some of the societal themes so that was my choice of location because 1950s America is I think the best example of something that looks beautiful and fun and you and your brain can be like oh I want to go to a party in the 50s, but <laughs> that was a shiny paint on top of a very, very dark society with a lot of hatred and animosity and oppression. So that's a lot of the themes of my book are someone growing up seeing only the shininess of their world and enjoying 
the society as it is currently constructed. And then as it starts to affect them, they start to see the flaws and the cracks. And um, so that's a young witch named Hildegard, who basically uh, you have to, in this society, when you are a young woman, when you turn 18, you have to choose between going to college to study higher forms of magic or to be a mother and wife. So that would be, you can only study three types of magic, which are called the domestics, because you need to be licensed to study anything else. And you can't go to college if you get married and have kids. So women at 18 have to choose, and it's always kind of offered up as like, it's a quality because you get to choose um, <laughs> if they're going to be a family witch or career witch. Kind of was me playing with the ideas of, of white feminism as the first hurdle, because this is a, a somewhat privileged character. Right. Ironically, she's not actually white, but <laughs> in this society, um, race, race isn't the thing that keeps people oppressed, there's more situational oppression. She comes from a place of privilege and then she starts to get pissed off at the system when she sees how it can limit her life. And then through finding those limitations, she sees how many people have it so much worse than her and how there's so much more than just this women can't have jobs energy and that people who don't identify as cisgender um, are are completely taboo in this society. Something you wouldn't even hear about uh, as a young person. It'd be like a whispered myth. And people who have children outside of marriage are completely, uh, reproductive rights are completely oppressed. And so she ends up kind of being thrust into this place of trying to figure out how do they all help each other? And that's the series. And each, there's four books and each book deals with a different hurdle. I guess. Yeah, I I really based it off of like the kind of path I've been on as a as a privileged person coming to activism and trying to figure out where I fit in. Book one is about a young woman being upset that young women are oppressed and kind of following that path, seeing it, seeing it for what it is. And then the second book is where she really starts to see how many other people are being put to death and, you know, exiled and all this craziness she never even knew about so she tries to work with other people to um organize and get the word out and do it all like the right way the lawful way and then that does not work spoiler for the series so then part three is being radicalized you know we couldn't get it done in, within the, the boundaries of the system. So yeah, burn the system down, goes a little too far, loses sight of what they're really fighting for and it becomes about anger. Yeah. And then the fourth book is trying to marry all of it together into something messy, but successful. Yeah. So I really want to read these books or at least the first one. I, anyway, um, but that's awesome. Is there, do you, is there any tie to how you write and how you identify past just um your sexuality is there any like do you relate to your main character or any of your other characters because I know you talked about how some of them are you in a sense um what what have you learned from writing that you probably wouldn't have learned 
in any other way. I absolutely have put myself in the book. I think every author does, whether or not they admit it, (laughs) there is a character that is them. (laughs) Um, And for me, it's the main character. It's very common. (laughs) You know, you, you know, the world as you see it. So you kind of insert yourself into the main character in just a somewhat tangential way of a young woman just trying, trying to figure out how to serve the things she needs and serve the things others need. One thing I I realized writing this is I often get like annoyed at main characters when I read books. I'm like, they're the most boring, flawed characters in the whole series. And they're the story we're following. They're the one we're supposed to have sympathy for. Why can't we follow the funny best friend who has cool layers and a lot to say? Yeah. And what I think I'm starting to see is that when an author inserts themselves, they give, they give if they're not an egotistical asshole, <laughs> they give very little grace to that character. You know, they, they really outline the flaws and they don't even write it with a lot of sympathy. Like <laughs> the, the main character is often, you might think they're kind of boring or wishy-washy or all of these things because you're writing your own opinions. And then the, the side characters are often like, oh, that's my best friend from high school who this is based off of, who's so fun and lights up a room. So that side character, everybody loves them because you've written them with so much love. And it's really hard to write yourself with a lot of love and kindness. And I find when I'm like trying, cause I'm trying to stay away from the concept of like the chosen one. But when I am writing where people tell like Hildegard that she's special, or unique or has things to say, I am pushing back against that. I'm like, no, she's just a chick. She's boring. <laughs> and so it's it's almost becoming like self-therapy to just be like, no, she's worked really hard and she's doing a good job and she's learning and she's growing and try to give her credit uh, for the things that she's achieved. Grace is the right, it's like therapeutic in a way. Absolutely. So you brought up Harry Potter just briefly, and I wanted to get your opinion on, because you are a writer and you know what that's like with the whole J.K. Rowling situation. Um, I'm a Harry Potter fan. You're a Harry Potter fan. When all of that went down, what was your take on it? And what was your feelings then towards the series itself? It hurt really bad. I think that that was the first feeling because <laughs> there were signs like none of us can say that there weren't signs that J.K. Rowling had some questionable opinions right. um, from day dot. You know, I read it as a kid, so I didn't necessarily pick up on the slaves who like slavery yeah, and the goblins, the banker goblins, <laughs> and Cho Chang. Like I didn't pick right. up on it. Uh, the like one of three black characters was given the last name Jordan, which just <laughs> I always found kind of funny. Um, but she came out as fronting like an ally. You know, she would talk a lot about the whole Dumbledore of it all, just being like, he's gay. It's like, okay, weird, but cool. <laughs> you could have put it in the book, but I appreciate it. And then when all of the, the transphobia hit the wall, I think that the thing that was the most disappointing was how much she was legitimately betraying so much of her fan base. Even those, even fans who are not trans, but, you know, young queer kids or young 
kid, neurodivergent kids, all of the kids who found such a deep love for this series because it loved difference and it loved the other and it stood for equality and, you know, Hufflepuff, uh, I'll, I'll teach the lot and I'll treat them all the same. Like that, that, that energy is what connected us to this ragtag kids who can save the world from oppression and hatred. And so then to turn around and be an umbrage, because <laughs> that's what she's being, you know, to turn around and be this, this hateful, stringent person who's so, who's so not willing to learn. You know, when she doubled down with that essay about why she doesn't align with, with trans women and why she's a turf, it, was, it showed such just this, this stance of, I will not grow and learn from this. There, there is no information you can send at me that's going to change how I feel. Your humanity is not going to change how I feel. And that was just like soul crushing because we all have to learn and grow. But for a woman of her success and her assumed intelligence, you know, she, she's a great writer. Uh, she seems to be very intelligent for her to be so uninterested in seeing different opinions uh, was hurtful. And I think it's left a big hole in the heart of the fantasy community because so many so many authors let us down you know i am not a huge fan of uh george r R. martin for the treatment of his women specifically just just absolutely brutalizing and assaulting all of his strong female characters if a woman gets too strong in game of thrones they gotta get sexually assaulted apparently but um and then, you know, there's just, there's so many, you know, Tolkien, when you look back on his, his past, has some questionable beliefs. So finding Stephanie Meyer <laughs> is, yeah. is, is, a, is a rough get. <laughs> but um, finding an author who loves their audience and who loves people and humanity is seem, seeming really hard to do. And so I have a, a little dream that my series, should it get published, could serve as kind of the, the foil to J.K. Rowling. Um, because I, I've written in several trans characters and gender fluid characters and lots of, lots of characters of color. And I'm trying my best to, to seek out voices to proofread and to tell me is this a good depiction of my character? Have I have I leaned into stereotype? Um, I have a drag culture present in my book and I want to make sure I'm doing that justice and not treating it as a caricature. And I I hope that I hope that I can be a part of the generation that kind of reclaims fantasy narratives. Because they mean so much to us. They they're our escape and they're just they're they're, they're so great for a young kid to have. And so it does hurt when an author discredits their own writing because her own writing was equality is paramount. It's sort of like a betrayal in a sense. Was there ever, I know that in the past year, well, I guess two years now, 2020, there's been a lot of just uprisings through, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and Stop Asian Hate and even within the, um, community there's been a lot as well but it's also been a lot through social media and I was wondering what your take on social media presence within 
social justice movement. And do you take part in that? What what part do you think it really has and what effect would it really have on actual change? I think it's a double-edged sword. Uh, with, with one edge of the sword, I believe being sharper and more important than the other, because I, I think social media has fundamentally changed how we do journalism. And I'm sure journalists would absolutely roll their eyes at that concept, a lot of them, because the concept of a um, primary source where, you know, back in the days of getting your evening news, it was whatever video clip from someone's camcorder they deemed useful <laughs> to the, you know, like, uh, we're doing a doing something about the the Chicago protests, and they might pick a clip that looks more like a riot than a protest. You know, the the way we were given information was somewhat filtered, and you could do that through the bias of your particular company. Fox would show a very different clip than CNN, and if you can cultivate a diverse social media presence, if you can see different things opposed to a very specific algorithm, you do get the opportunity to see first person filming. Live streams were so big. I remember watching the Ferguson protests on live stream and that was really the first, the first time that I, as a, I must have been early teens, maybe 15, 16 years old, just seeing something that looked as drastic as the videos we were shown of the marches that Martin Luther King led, you know, those were with the hosing down of people that we were, I would never, I never saw a protest that looked that brutal until Ferguson. And I saw the people actually filming it being gassed and shot with rubber bullets. And I was, you know, I was at lunch at school watching that. And that's a whole new world you know, I think back to, to Rodney King a lot with how that was kind of the first presence of, of a personal filming really changing a movement. And, and we just see it grow and grow now. You know, everyone, whether or not you like it, no, whether or not it, it hurt you deeply, saw George Floyd's death. You know, that was on everybody's news feeds. And I don't know if they would have shown that on the news, maybe for good reason, because it's horrifying to watch, but before social media, it's become a lot, it's been become a lot more tactile for a lot of people. And I, I saw that a lot, this is an activism, but during Ida, and it is kind of activism because th there was a lot going on this week. And so the devastation of Ida was not reported to the extent I think it probably should have been. Exactly. And so seeing people filming their streets and being like, we are stranded and we need help and no one is coming. You know, that's been, I think, very important. But then you have the other side, which I think is pure performance. And everything we do on social media is a performance. I think I, I need to say that first and foremost. Correct. So if you are doing activism on social media, it's already a performance. Uh, whether or not you have good intentions is where it gets complicated. Because I think too many people, too many, I think specifically white, hetero, cis allies use movements to kind of bolster an image that they are a good person. Mm -hmm. um, I always think about, 
I don't know how I feel about putting ACAB BLM in my bio. You know, I, I always kind of go back and forth. I'm like, my bio says my pronouns and my occupation. Right. Is Am I signaling by saying BLM, pride flag, trans lives matter? Like, like am I, what am I, who am I trying? Who's going to see that and be like, oh, thank you. <laughs> That's kind of where I'm coming from. I wonder if anybody, because I don't necessarily see, you know, a pride flag. And I'm like, oh, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> when I saw on a bio. <laughs> so I, I don't currently have a lot of that in, in my messaging. But staying silent doesn't seem particularly responsible either. So you're in this kind of loop of, of where does the line lie, where it becomes about me showing the world how good of a person I am and that I'm at the protest and that I donated money I had a lot of issues with people screenshotting the amount they donated to like relief funds and saying like, donate and putting their $50 donation on their social media. I don't know how I feel about that. Specifically saying the amount of money you donate because I just, I just don't know. I don't know what's productive when it comes to, you know, there were those memes that I shared, I totally shared that were like, have a good Friday. Remember Brianna Taylor's murderers aren't behind bars. Right. You know, like that kind of, the, the fact that you had like a pretty little image and it was like, have a beautiful Friday, don't, don't forget. And yeah, I never knew like where, <laughs> where was that productive? When was that me just being like, oh, I still remember. I'm present, like. <laughs> I'm here, I remembered it. Yeah. I didn't call the office or anything, but I remember. (laughs) So I think it has a very definitive use, which in my opinion is, is, is live first person journalism. Um, and education. There's definitely education. I've learned so much, but I don't feel like I'm in a position to, to necessarily productively educate, educate people on, on things like the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, I don't, I don't think my voice is the one we need to be hearing right now. And I don't have a big enough following to, to go around and be like, I'm going to amplify. <laughs> like what, I'm not amplifying anyone. I, I'm not an influencer. So um, I, more than anything, I just follow the creators that I think are doing the right work. Right. I follow creators of color and I follow trans creators and I listen and I note it and I try to remember the things that the pointers they give and the things they say and the perspectives they offer so that next time I'm hanging out with a trans friend, I don't have to ask them, is it cool if I say that? Right. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I think it's complicated. And I think our young people, our teenagers are going to be the ones who I really have to figure out how useful this was because they're, they're growing up completely entrenched in it. When it comes to the LGBT community, do you feel like you have that place to teach or you should be being a part of it or do you feel like because I know for a lot of people within the black community it's been like we can't anymore we can't teach Mm -hmm. anymore we can't it's not our responsibility you've had the whole your whole life to learn what what is that for you is it yes I, I can teach you or is it like at a certain certain point I can teach you what is your stance on that and 
sort of where does that come from for you? Honestly, my opinion on it is pretty selfish, but I think I get to be because I've, I've definitely dabbled in that arena. Um, my first viral video, um, which wasn't about being queer, but was, um, I had like 30 followers and I thought I was just posting it to my friends. But my first video that got, I think it has 700,000 views at this point, um, was me reacting to, to the statistic of 55% of white women voting for Trump. And I just did like a snarky, smart ass thing about how I think that they should lose certain privileges if they're trying to vote against certain people's existences. So I was like, I don't think you should be able to have a margarita night if you voted for Trump. <laughs> like I, I just like listed out things. I'm like, I don't think that you should be able to go to Starbucks anymore because they donate to Planned Parenthood. Like I was just like listing various uh various things you can't listen to taylor swift you can't shop at target <laughs> um and that was just a joke and you know the initial response was like oh haha but you know the more the more it got built up the the more horrific it got to have created it because i didn't know you could turn off comments i didn't know anything i had 30 followers right. i didn't know i had my stitches on i had my duets on, I had my comments oh, no. on. it was horrible and I wasn't really a creator yet so like if you went to the, the Instagram that I had linked public and open and says very specifically the town I live in like oh, you could easily figure out my address my my Etsy I didn't have a business PO box or anything so my home address was the return address if you ordered something off my Etsy I was not prepared to receive hate mail and I didn't get direct, like, you know, to my house. Luckily, no one figured that out, but like, they could have. Right. I got DMs on Instagram. Um, one was just a guy's picture of his gun. Uh, I had people go to every single video I'd ever post. Um, specifically, they came after my appearance. Uh, I had posted, I, you know, I do witchcraft, so I posted like a love spell. And I believe the exact comment was like, feel bad for whatever sucker is pulled in by this liberal fugly dyke I believe was the phrasing like it was a wild wild phrasing and I want to be the kind of person that sees conservatives respond hatefully to my stuff and be like haha I got a rise out of them like I want to be able to, to laugh at it and screenshot the the comment and post it and have people see the ridiculousness but I just broke down you know I just People, you know, called called me hateful and they called me racist, you know, against white people. And it really sucked. You know, I had threats of sexual violence on my in my comment section. I didn't even, I didn't even know you could block a comment. I didn't know any of it. So I like didn't know how to delete comments. And if I had to go through two delete comments, I had to read them all. Yeah. So I just like, I was like, I'm I posted one other video, like a part two of that because I did get positive response from most people. So I posted part two, still got hatred, but went on to all of my shit. I got called out for the most tiny things. You know, my mom, my mom on a TikTok that I filmed of her had just referred to Trump as a Cheeto. And this like little like dragoon of hateful women were like, you're, you are appearancist. And your mother is hateful. And I'm like, this is horrible. So I got scared 
by that. And I, I really backed my, my content away from anything politicized for a long time. And I've had the other things that I have, everything I've had that's gotten big, besides a handful of sweet, cute things, have been me saying my mind on something. And while that that followership coming in is great, the, the comments are always, always rough. And um, I have something sitting in my drafts that I'm trying to work up the courage to post um, about buy erasure Be, to, to specifically try to do some, you know, me as a person who has, has seen its perspective uh, because there is one, there was one video I saw, so I have it like saved to Stitch where a young woman said that um, bisexual people are privileged because they can pass as straight. And um, I just think that that's a terrible narrative. <laughs> I think it's a terrible narrative. Whether or not that's kind of true, it's not a, it's not a privilege to pretend to be something you're not. You know, I don't think that that's how we should be talking to young queers coming up in the community of like, you don't, you are not a part of the movement because you could go date a cis man and be safe. Because we're not safe. Um, bisexual women experience an incredibly high rate of sexual assault. Higher, higher than any other, uh, when you remove race from it, higher than any other contingent. So from a sexuality standpoint, it's trans women and bisexual women experience the highest rate of sexual assault. Wow. And there's terrible narratives, you know, there's, there's fetishization. And then within your own community, you're told you're not supposed to be there. You know, I've had plenty of lesbians <laughs> comment on my shit and be like, well, show us your girlfriend. I'm like, I don't have one. I am single. <laughs> I've, I have people calling me a fake lesbian and I'm not a lesbian. For, to be clear, but I have people calling me like a fake gay because I have long nails. And I think that's really funny because <laughs> I'm like, sexual activity does not make you queer. <laughs> make Being queer makes you queer. I am not a hypersexual queer person. So I'm sorry, but I'm not using my fingers every weekend. <laughs> that is an interesting thing to say to someone. It's weird. <laughs> like, <laughs> wow. Well, I think you should post it. If there's anything that you want people to know or learn from you as someone a part of the community, as a writer, or just some being on this earth that you take with you every day that you want other people to hopefully learn, what would it be? As a writer, Mm -hmm. I think something really important to say, and to, to audiences who like levy this narrative, there is no such thing as forced diversity. That does, that does not mean anything. Mm -hmm. um, look at the world around you, maybe outside of your own direct community, and you will find many people who are not your color and your sexual orientation and your wealth. Like the we're not forcing narratives by writing people who exist mm -hmm. into books and movies. Putting a female superhero in a Marvel film is not forcing diversity. It's representing the world. Um, 
so one, please don't ever criticize something for forced diversity. And two, as a writer and a creator, uh, don't don't write the three people who are in your roommates. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Write everybody you know, everybody who's come into your life and made an impact on it. Everybody who's ever said something hateful to you, write them, write, write everybody. Um, and don't be afraid of thinking that your voice is insignificant in conversations about anything because you exist and you live here and you, you've experienced things. Um, don't speak over people, but don't feel like I can't write a young woman because I am a boy. <laughs> <laughs> your, your your experience is significant and do your research and just try to try to hold a mirror try to hold a mirror to the world and maybe if you want put a nicer glaze on it give us a prettier world give us a happier world <laughs> show us that it's possible in a book <laughs> um and lastly i probably just for my own sake please give me the title of your book and the series again so i can write it down <laughs> the book is titled The Sisterhood of Whispers. Mm -hmm. And the series is titled The Green Veil Volumes. Anything else you would like to discuss before we log off? No, I just want to thank you for organizing this. This has been a really fun experience. Thank you for being a part of it. Um, I'm really glad we met through this, and I hope that we can stay connected because um, you're great and I'm excited to read your book and everything else you do and I might just have to eventually come to wherever you are directing and putting on a show um, maybe not now because you know <laughs> no <laughs> not the best time to travel at some point I will but thank you so much I really appreciate you doing this and redoing this <laughs> and spending some time with me that's amazing thank, thank you. you so much I've had a great time day. you too it was great to meet you. I hope we stay connected. Hey, me too. <laughs> Have a great day. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.